Secret of Chloe the Dog by Angela Buck Read by Madeline Lambert Nancy Drew, an attractive girl of 18, was driving home along a country road in her new dark blue convertible. She had just delivered some legal papers for her father. Now she had some business of her own. It was sweet of Dad to give me this car for my birthday, she thought. And it's fun to help him in his work. Nancy possessed no outstanding talents or traits other than her hair, which, it could not be denied, gleamed more than ordinary hair. It was voluminous as well. She was certainly well-groomed. Aside from her hair, she was plump from lack of exercise and sometimes out-and-out laziness. Her schoolwork was subpar, her athletic abilities yawn-inducing, and when she spoke, she did so with a lisp, not because of a natural defect, which would have been understandable, but because of her inability to see why it mattered. Her father, a well-known lawyer in their hometown of River Heights, often discussed puzzling aspects of cases with his blonde, blue-eyed daughter in the hope that his work might spark her intellect and spur her on to greater things. He was constantly thinking of ways to get Nancy off his hands. He wanted to retire soon and move to Barcelona, but he couldn't take the girl with him. She would be a drag on his life and his libido. Smiling, Nancy said to herself, Dad depends on my intuition. The car sped along River Road until it came to an intersection. Oh, I forget which way to turn. She had left the directions in her coat pocket back home. It was unbelievably distressing to her to make a decision like this. She turned the nose of the car right, then left again, and finally drove the car around in a circle. Eventually, a police officer noticed her indecision and pulled over to help her. Looks like you're lost, he said, tipping his hat forward so that it almost fell into Nancy's lap. Oh, I forget which way to go, Nancy said, balling her hands into tight little fists and punching the steering wheel. Depends on where you want to go. Nancy noticed how handsome the officer was. She smiled, then covered her mouth with her hand because she did not want to appear too forward. I'm looking for clues, she said softly. I want to solve a mystery for dad. That's pretty vague. The officer smiled back at her. It's just that, oh, you'll think it's stupid. Try me. The officer was clearly enjoying this. His head was completely inside the car now, so that if Nancy had rolled up the window, she could have beheaded him. Instead, she kissed him on the mouth. Have I done anything wrong? Nancy smirked. He opened Nancy's car door and asked her to step out. I'm haunted she said, and put one hand over her eyes to shield them from the sun. Hunted? His voice was close to hers now, and he was rubbing himself against her yellow dress. I'll keep you safe. Who's the guy? I'll find him. Nancy said nothing, but stood with her bodice gaping open. One of her breasts had popped out of her bra. The nipple turned upward to an astounding degree, like the finger of a medieval saint pointing toward heaven. She wore a special bra and performed exercises to achieve this effect. Come on, let's go down the side, he said, indicating with a nod the desired embankment. It does look soft, Nancy giggled. She walked around to the other side of the car and looked down. Green feathery grass grew along the embankment. 
It moved a little in the wind. The officer came up from behind and playfully pushed her. She somersaulted forward and landed on her back. Wee, she said. The officer leapt to her side. When she awoke at noon, the officer was gone. Nancy felt unbelievably sensual lying in the sun, her dress torn open, her underwear tossed aside, her body sweaty and beginning to sunburn. Her nipples felt raw. He left me here, all alone, she thought frantically. Anyone could have come along and done anything to me, she huffed. Then she smiled and yawned and gathered her things and dressed herself. Her purse was hanging from the branch of a nearby tree. Inside was a note. I know about your mystery now, Nance. There's a farmhouse about a mile from here. Go there, but don't tell them I sent you. Say you're an interior designer and call yourself Stacy. Take care, Officer Rowlandson. Stacy? What an awful name. Nancy walked slowly up the embankment with her arms at her sides. It was more exercise than she had had in a long time, and she was beginning to get winded. Her convertible was where she had left it, everything in its proper place, the heirloom blankets still in the back seat, the metal box where she kept her expensive jewelry, and even the keys dangling from the ignition. All was well, except, Nancy gasped, someone had keyed her brand new convertible. She had to step back to read the words, die, bitch. Who would do such a terrible thing? Nancy looked around. Across the road, three Mexican men were loading crates of corn into a truck. Nancy ran over to them, waving her arms. Did you see who did that to my car? They looked at each other and laughed. My car, C-A-R, car, she said. Nancy tried desperately to remember what she had learned in Spanish class. What was the word for car or scoundrels? Cajones, she yelled. Muchos diablos. The men doubled over with laughter. Their faces turned completely red. One of them tipped over in the grass. Drunks, stupid drunks, she yelled. I know an officer, you know. We're very close friends. The men stopped laughing, not because they were scared of Nancy's threats, but because the joke had run its course, and they wanted to get her off their hands. It was the officer that did it, miss, one of them said the shortest. He took his baseball cap off his head and wiped the sweat away with the back of his hand. The officer messed with your car. The pigs, the taller one yelled. He made little oinking noises as he threw crates into the truck. I don't know nothing more, the first man said, but he went that way. He pointed down River Road toward the mountains. Gracias, Nancy said, her eyes lowered. She thought it meant something else, and she was too disheartened to think of the right words. Nancy didn't know what to think. Should she go to the farmhouse as Officer Rowlandson said, or drive in the opposite direction where the Mexican man pointed? First, she would drive home and talk to her father. Carson Drew owned a palatial estate in the heart of River Heights. From the top floor, he could survey the entire valley and even make out the skyline of the nearest city but he didn't live on the top floor, or even the second or first. He lived in a little room in the basement and rarely left, except for business. But most of the time, he sent Nancy out into the world to do his bidding for him. 
Nipples were raw, you said? Carson Drew said, after Nancy told him about the events of the day. She kept no secrets from her father. It was a habit of hers, important for solving mysteries that carried over into the rest of her life. It felt good at first, Nancy said, and then it felt terrible. And then when I saw what happened with the car and what those Mexicans told me, Nancy leaned against a stack of legal documents as she spoke. Her father's office was filled with paper and filing cabinets. She could hardly make out his face and body. She only saw two eyes and a mouth. It seemed like his appendages were made out of paper. You can't trust foreigners, Carson Drew said. If it were up to me, I'd have them all deported. You think they lied to me? Of course they lied to you. And it was probably those bozos who vandalized your car. Played a trick on me, Nancy sulked. That's right, dear. And right when I was hot on the trail, her cheeks flushed with rage. It happens to the best of us. You'll learn as you gain experience who to trust and who's a born liar. I feel so foolish, Dad. Now, don't get down on yourself. Listen, I have a friend who owns an auto shop. It's just beyond the farmhouse that Officer Rowlandson told you to go to. Follow out his orders and then stop at the auto shop on the way back. By the end of the day, you'll be back on the right track and the car will be fixed up. Oh, Dad, I'm so glad I came home. Nancy crawled over the desk and kissed her father on the cheek. As she was slipping out the door, Carson Drew said, Oh, just one thing, Nancy. Your little tryst with Rollinson? Nancy raised an eyebrow. Let's just keep that between the two of us, shall we? You bet, Dad. It was almost two o'clock by the time Nancy reached the farmhouse. It wasn't a real working farm. None of the farms in River Heights were anymore. Instead, it was a restored farmhouse with updated additions. The owners must be rich and stylish. Rural chic, Nancy thought. A chandelier hung from the porch, and below that, two older women were sitting on white wicker chairs with big, plush gray cushions. The tables looked like they were made out of steel. A big white poodle sat at their feet. Oh, I hate poodles, Nancy thought as she pulled into the driveway. But then she remembered that her name was Stacy, and she was an interior designer, not the daughter of an important lawyer in town. Stacy probably liked poodles. I will have to lie, Nancy said, for the sake of truth. When she approached the porch, the dog jumped up, ran over to her, and pawed at her dress. Chloe, one of the women shouted. Chloe, no! The dog leapt up and slammed its paws down on Nancy's shoulders, knocking her to the ground. The dog was enormous, at least twice Nancy's size. It straddled her crumpled body, its front paws on either side of her face like a vice grip. Drool gathered in Chloe's lips and then dripped onto Nancy's face, washing her lipstick away. Oh, it's no trouble, Nancy cried. I love dogs. Chloe, leave it. Leave it, Chloe. The two women came running. It took both of them to pull the dog off Nancy. Her dress was ripped open for the second time that day. She caught her image in the reflection of the car window. I look amazing and tragic, she thought. No matter how hard she tried to get that tousled look, only sex and trauma made her hair look like that. Her breasts had once again popped out of her bra. Oh, dear, 
Look what Chloe has done. The two women took hold of Nancy and buttoned up the front of her dress. They took her by the hand and led her to the porch. I'm sorry, she's a vicious animal. Aren't you, Chloe? Chloe sat in the shade of the porch like a sphinx. Her black eyes remained unmoved. Her poodle ears hung down on both sides of her face like a big winter hat. She looked straight ahead, contemplating the empty air. She fatally wounded a child, one of our neighbors, and now the courts say we have to put her down. But she can be a gentle creature, too. We love her. It must be hard for you, Nancy said, to have a dog like that. Yes, it is. Our nephew's coming later today to shoot her. Your nephew? Is he a trained animal killer? Nancy asked. No, not that. He's a police officer. He shoots criminals, not animals, but the technique is the same. I just realized we haven't introduced ourselves. How rude. I'm Eveline, and this is my partner, Joyce. I assume you are Stacy from River Heights Design? Nancy tried to keep her cool, but her mind was racing. A police officer? Were these Officer Rowlandson's aunts? I would have worn a better dress, Nancy thought. Do you have anything to drink? She asked. It's so hot today, and I'm thirsty. Eveline shot out of her seat. We have iced tea. I'll be right back. That bought Nancy some time, so she could regain her composure. I am Stacy, she said. It came out stiffly, and she couldn't think of anything else to say. It was impossible to think of herself as a Stacy, or what a Stacy might say or think. All she could think about was Officer Rowlandson and whether these women, Eveline and Joyce, were his aunts. Joyce said, We thought so. Nancy smiled and looked around. Did you bring the swatches? Darn. Why didn't she think this through before she came? Of course an interior designer would have swatches and other things like paint chips and sketches. I had them, Nancy stammered, but Chloe knocked them out of my hand when she attacked me. Look, I'm bleeding. She pointed to a trickle of blood on her ankle. I'll get the first aid kit, Joyce said. That was quick thinking, Nancy thought. She put her hands behind her head and leaned back in her wicker seat, beaming with pride. After a while, Nancy realized she had fallen asleep. Where were Joyce and Eveline? Chloe was in the exact same position, fixated on nothingness. Nancy walked over to the dog. Do you know you're going to die? She said with a pout. She reached out and scratched behind one of Chloe's ears. Chloe remained unmoved. I just hope Officer Rowlandson is professional and trained. No need for an animal to suffer unnecessarily. Chloe yawned and put her head in between her paws. Nancy decided to go inside the farmhouse. If Joyce and Eveline caught her, she would say that she wanted to get a sense of the layout. They had hired her, after all, to decorate their house. To Nancy's surprise, the inside of the house was already comfortably furnished. It was decked out with new furniture, new curtains, everything freshly painted, and framed pictures on the walls. A gray, even light permeated the entire house. Nancy walked around the first floor, picking things up and setting them back down. Everything appeared to have been bought that morning. It looked like a showroom, not a house that anyone actually lived in. Maybe they had a carriage house that needed to be decorated? It didn't make any sense. 
Nancy returned to the front stairwell and tiptoed up the stairs. They hired me to come here, she thought. I'm not doing anything wrong or out of the ordinary. And my name is Stacy. When she reached the top, she could hear Eveline and Joyce whispering in one of the bedrooms. At least she thought it was them. The murmur came and went like a breeze in and out of a window. The upstairs was also suffused with a gray, even light, and everything was freshly painted. What is she doing here? Nancy thought she heard Eveline say. How did she find us? Joyce replied in a placid voice, but beneath that, Nancy could hear the panic in her voice. Knock, knock, it's Stacy, Nancy said softly at the door. Oh, Stacy, Eveline exclaimed. We're sorry to leave you down there all alone with Chloe. We've just received a terrible phone call, Joyce said, and it's put us in no mood for company. What happened? Nancy asked, if you don't mind my asking. It's our lawyer, Joyce said with great seriousness. He's a crook, Eveline said. How do you know? Nancy said. Did he call you? Of course not, Joyce said. He would never look us in the eye, and now we know why. What has he done? Nancy gasped. Taken all our money, that's what, and left town. He left for Barcelona this morning with that fat, spoiled daughter of his. Nancy began to shake. The light coming through the window was beginning to fade, and the faces of Eveline and Joyce went dark. She could only see their lips moving, but couldn't hear the words. A shadow fell across the bed. The two women sat on either side. What was his name? Nancy whispered. His name? Joyce seemed confused. Your lawyer. Only the most respectable lawyer in town, Eveline spit out the words. Carson Drew. Nancy thought she might strike her face. Nancy ran out of the room and down the stairs. When she reached the bottom, she thought she could hear laughter coming from the bedroom, but it could have been anything. This is no time for paranoia, Nancy. You've got to keep your head. Once she reached her convertible, she debated what to do. It couldn't be her father getting on a plane with her, Nancy, by his side, headed for Barcelona with a suitcase of cash he had stolen from two women. This was insanity. Eveline and Joyce were as insane as that horrible dog, and that was all there was to it. Her immediate desire was to go straight home and talk to her father to clear things up right away, but that would have seemed suspicious. Didn't he tell her to go to the auto shop to get her car fixed up after going to the farmhouse? If she didn't do that first, he might think she didn't trust him and rejected his favors. When he had never been anything but kind to Nancy, always sending her out on adventures and buying her a convertible to ride in style, and even when she got herself into a jam, like she did earlier today, giving her the name of a reputable auto shop where they would fix her up right away. First, I'll go to the auto shop, Nancy thought, and then straight home. The auto shop wasn't nearly as close as her father had said it would be. She drove and drove, and by the time she saw the sign for Riverside Auto Repair, the sun had dipped below the mountains. They might not even be open, she thought, as she pulled up to the garage. She got out of the car and looked around a little. It seemed completely deserted. She thought it must be closed, but she rang the bell anyway, just to be sure. A man dressed in blue coveralls came around the corner. Officer Rowlandson, Nancy cried. You work here. Shh, 
Keep your voice down. I'm sorry, Nancy said. It's just that I was so surprised. He was wiping his tanned, muscular hands on a white towel. He did this quickly, then tossed the towel in a large cardboard box full of dirty towels. Police force doesn't pay what it used to, so I work here part-time, but I don't want anyone to know. That you're an officer? Yes. Criminals don't respect you if they know you have a night job. They laugh in your face. They'll toss aside a loaded gun like it's a toy. I understand, Nancy said. Am I the only one who knows? Officer Rowlandson didn't answer. I'm not in the mood for games, Stacy. Have you got some car trouble or did you just come here to flirt with me? Nancy laughed. Stacy, she could play that game. And what's your name? Ray? Yeah, actually. Come on, Stacy, don't be an idiot. I don't want to play your games. Nancy was shocked, but also excited. She decided to play along. I've been all over God's green earth, Ray, chasing your mysteries. I've been to the farmhouse and met your aunts and was attacked by that poodle, and they said the most horrible things about my father and about me. And I would have driven straight home, but something told me to come here, and now I know why, Ray. It was you who vandalized my car, wasn't it? Ray smiled. You really take things to heart, don't you, Stacy? And you watch too many movies. Okay, my boss is gone. Ray grabbed Nancy by the waist and threw her down on the dirty rags. His hands were strong and nimble, first from shooting criminals and then from fixing cars. Nancy's breasts were bigger than before. Her hair felt rough in his hands. He thrust a hand into her underwear, like before, but this time it felt different. She felt like a different person. Harder, Ray. Oh, that feels good. Stacy, you dirty girl. Afterward, when they were dressing, Nancy said in a tone of great seriousness, I found it, Ray. I found it. I'm glad I didn't give up the search. Whatever you say, Stacy. Let's take a look at your car. The car was not the same. It was not a dark blue convertible, but a dingy brown sedan. Where's my beautiful car? She asked. Stacy, enough already. I want to go home. And stop calling me that, Nancy almost screamed. I thought we were slumming it. Whatever you say, I'm out of here. Ray walked around to the side of the building where his police motorcycle was waiting. He hopped on the back of it and drove away. Serve and protect, you bastard. Nancy could hardly believe the words that were coming out of her mouth. She looked at herself in the driver's side window. Her hair was frizzy. Her face looked ugly and damaged. I look like white trash, she said with disgust. There was only one thing to do now. Go see her father. Nancy drove in a rage, and when she reached the gates of her home, she was aghast. The exterior code would not work. She parked the car a few blocks down, so as not to raise the suspicions of the neighbors, she thought. And then immediately, what am I thinking? These are my neighbors. I am Nancy Drew. She walked two blocks and entered through a side gate. She went up to the house and looked through the window of her father's office. All the lights were out. She couldn't see inside. She tried all the doors, but they were locked. The mailbox was full of mail. It hadn't been picked up in weeks. She thought about breaking a window, but then the police would come. Maybe Officer Rowlandson would come. Could she trust him? Probably not. She felt despondent. 
Why had he abandoned her like this? What was Carson Drew thinking? Then a light went on next door, and another light. She saw men moving in the bushes. One said into his walkie-talkie, That's her, all right. Nancy ran and ran as fast and as hard as she could. She had never worked this hard in her life. She felt like a hunted animal. I thought it was all fun and games, she thought, and for the first time she was struck by the stupidity of her thoughts and the futility of all her vain pursuits. Her father was a criminal and had sold her out in the worst possible way, and she knew it all along but didn't want to see it. I've been a fool, she thought. Nancy drove straight to the farmhouse. It was the only place to go. Eveline and Joyce came to the door in their nightgowns. Oh, you've come at last, Eveline said. God bless you, Stacy, Joyce said. Pay me first, Nancy said. I've got no time for games. Eveline went back inside the house and came back with an envelope. Five hundred dollars, just as we agreed on the phone. Nancy counted out the bills. It's short, only four eighty, she said annoyed. Eveline and Nancy waited outside while Joyce went back into the house to find another bill. We thought you'd be here earlier, Eveline said. I had some things I had to do, Nancy said. Well, we are enormously grateful to you. Don't be, Nancy said. It's just a job. Then Joyce came out of the house. The three of them walked to a shed in the backyard next to a big weeping willow. Joyce held the gun. Should we say a prayer? Joyce said. If you want, Nancy said. I can't think of anything. No one ever can. They brought the dog out on a leash. Chloe had that same placid look, expressing neither anxiety nor hope. It came forward and bowed its head. Do it now, Eveline said. I can't bear to look, Joyce said. She handed the gun to Nancy, who pressed it to the dog's temple and pulled the trigger. Brains splattered on the white nightgowns of Joyce and Eveline. But somehow, Nancy came out clean. You're listening to Fiction Transmission, a project of Fiction Collective 2. FC2 is a nonprofit author-run publisher of innovative fiction, a literary alternative since 1974. Every week we bring you a story and a conversation. You just heard The Secret of Chloe the Dog by Angela Buck from her book Horses Dream of Money, published by FC2 in 2021. Next, Angela is joined by Curtis White, novelist, social critic, and author of Living in a World That Can't Be Fixed, Reimagining Counterculture Today, for a conversation across the cosmic distance of isolation. So we should uh, probably turn to your book, Horses Dream of Money. So the first thing I want to say is congratulations. It's a terrific book. I want to ask you a question about uh, your bio on the back on the jacket, which is sort of in a weird way sets the tone for the book because it's so contrary. 
I mean, usually uh, writers can't resist the temptation to sort of show that they belong in that bio. And what they're showing that they belong to is a kind of uh, <clears throat> elite world of culture. Uh, you know, so I've published here, I've published there, I did this program, I did that program, whatever. It's, it's the sort of um, ego building exercise as if the reader won't read your book unless they can see that you went to the right places and published in the right places. But you say, Angela, and I assume this is all you're doing, that nobody from FC2 told you to do it. Angela Buck has worked in hotels, hospitals, libraries, grocery stores, restaurants, bookstores, schools, amusement parks, museums, and universities. So you sort of uh, you sort of put a certain kind of uh, gauntlet down that has to do with class. And what's really interesting is that there's it really led me to focus on class issues in your stories, especially I think in this story, The Secret of Chloe the Dog which has uh, so much bourgeois detail running in and out of it. But at any rate, let me let you respond to just the, the, the self-description on the back. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, so this is my first book. And so a big part of it has been an exercise in doing things and then having to think about why I did them <laughs> afterward. Um, but I would say that in writing this, I wasn't necessarily trying to throw down a gauntlet about myself per se, like asserting some kind of class identity that I wanted people to congratulate me for or something like that. It's more like I wanted to assert something about the nature of writing, you know, as work, as mm -hmm. a kind of work and also um, literature as a, is a public enterprise and a public good, which is in a way it's like the, the, the bio is its own piece of fiction. <laughs> Cause it's like, I do have degrees, you know, I, I, I went to UMass and, and, and got an MFA in poetry. And then I went to university of Denver and did a PhD. Um, but for some reason I didn't want to put that in the bio because I want to live in a different world. And so maybe this, Maybe this bio is a way for me to assert some kind of utopian yeah. desire for like a different kind of world. And, you know, to pretend in a sense that I live in like Richard Scarry's busy town where we're <laughs> we're all doing valuable work and we're we're all, um, you know, in a way valued for the kind of work that we do, whether we're like a house cleaner, or whether we write poetry. So I don't know. Now that I'm looking at it, I feel like it could come across as some kind of like humble brag or something, but I really think it's more about. No, it's just, uh, it doesn't come across in that way at all. It's just sort of like, there it is. This is what, this is what is, yeah. <laughs> you know, which it, which it comes across as a kind of remarkable honesty. So, you know, I'm not going to try to play that game. And I really, I personally really relate to it, as I said to you, because yeah, that's what, this is the sort of thing I should have had on my first book. I don't know what the hell I had on my first book, but this is the sort of thing I should have had on because my my class background is is you know working class all the way, and the only reason I was ever to go to school was because of the New Deal, basically, and what happened in public education after the New Deal in the fifties and the the total affordability of universities at that time. I mean, you could be 
you could be dirt poor, as I certainly was, uh, and still go to university. So yeah, totally. And and my I mean, my parents didn't go to college and had five kids right out of um high school. And so like when I went off to college, it was really shocking. You know, especially in a country that doesn't that has this like completely disavows class as like a thing. Or if it if it if it does appear at all, I think for people it 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 appears as something like a sense of shame or like a sense of like, you don't belong somewhere. Like it's just, right. it's ex- at least like I experience classes almost like a glitch or like a disavowed sort of experience. That's like, Oh, that's weird. Like, why did I feel so different in college? Why did I, why did I right. feel so out of place? Why were my values and experiences at odds with these people at the same time, if you're, if you're someone from a working class background and you do make your way into the literary world, you in a way have a lot in common with those people because you have, you have, um, you know, you want to write books right? (laughs) or you want to be a professor like that. I never wanted to be a professor. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I I was in universities all my life, practically until I retired. And I was a professor for, and eventually a distinguished professor for 30 years. And I, I, I never wanted anyone to call me doctor or professor or anything else. I just, I, it was just like, I, that's not who I am. I don't think of myself. I'm not proud of that. It was something I had to do to get, to get to a place where I could live and do the things I wanted to do, but it was, but you know, yeah, the class I, markers meant nothing, nothing to me. I totally agree. And I think that there's something about the class markers now that allows academic labor to be exploited, you know, because right. it's like you can't pay people full salaries. So you give them, uh, you know, you give, you reward people in titles and culture when you can't give them, you know, a decent salary or like health benefits. And so I think that maybe was part of the bio too, where it's like, if you call yourself assistant professor of blah, 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 people think that you are less precarious than you actually are right <laughs> you know and that it is work you know it's mm. work it's it's um it's work that i find valuable and yeah well if you have a the kind of long backgrounds in many kinds of, of really marginal work that we both had to uh to get to a place where you know you can actually live on doing doing and do something that uh, mean something to you you know it's not flipping hamburgers at mcdonald's or working on an assembly line in a, in a fuller brush warehouse like i did uh <clears throat> it's uh it, it's a it's a strange feeling because i was there but i never felt i never felt like i was part of it right i always felt at a distance mainly because working class kids are always told that that this is not for you i actually had a professor at johns hopkins uh, Ronald Paulson, who I I came to the first day of class and it was being taught by Hugh Kenner and Paulson was there because Kenner was sick. And Paulson said to me after class, he said, I'm, you don't belong here because I was in the writing program, not in the PhD program. You know, you don't belong here. And I knew exactly how to respond to that. You know, But at, at any rate, let's move on to the story. Um, the Secret of Chloe the Duck. Uh, the reason I, I thought it, talking about your 
yourself description would be a good way of getting into this story is because there's there's so much class detail in this story. I mean, it starts off with Nancy Drew, who is this sort of uh, legendary uh, figure of, of adolescent female bourgeois culture, you know, a way for young uh, women to to sort of see themselves for the first time, you know, see a, discover a mirror in which they come to understand who they are. And uh, really the story, you're, it's so spooky the way you're able to, to circulate around uh, an issue without ever really going ahead and touching it directly. But it's so much more powerful because of that. But can you talk about the way class functions in this story? Yeah. Um... And also, I think, by way of talking about that, talking about not just class, but how it intersects with feminism, because I had one of the major critiques of the book has been that some of the depictions are misogynistic. And I honestly never thought that when I was writing it. And then I had to really think about why am I kind of throwing Nancy Drew around like a rag doll? Like, what's up with that? Like, do I hate women? Do I hate myself? <laughs> like, what, wow. why, you know, why am I doing this? And, and I, and I think it's like, what's coming across in this story and in other stories, like, um, the solicitor are not hate. It's not a hatred of women. It's a hatred of liberal feminism and it's complete lack of a class analysis. And, uh-huh. and, and, and kind of like, I, I don't want to say I'm like canceling Nancy Drew in the story. I mean, it's like kind of a joke, Like the story is a little bit of a joke to me or like I'm having fun with it. But I do think that there's this, there's, I am like indirectly expressing anger at, at liberal feminism and it's kind right. of fantasies of uh, yeah. the girl boss, <laughs> right? you know, maybe like part of the thing that I'm critiquing there or whatever, like about, liberal feminism is this idea that if we just have like strong female characters, you know, if we just, if we just inspire people with the kinds of women we would like to see in the world, that that will somehow undo, you know, the kinds of structural forces that create gender or racial inequality in the first place. So maybe I am indirectly poking fun at that too. Um, but you see, it is kind of a cancel culture thing that would say to you that because you have her tits popping out of her blouse now and then that you're that you're a misogynist of some kind. Uh, whereas the way I read it when that was happening, I I, I said, oh, this writer is free. <laughs> this writer is free to do what she wants. She's not, you know, not going to obey any uh, uh, PC templates, which to me was like, OK, I'm willing to read on. But, you know. That's not how everybody would respond, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I read the same way. Like, I don't, I don't want to get a moral message from the books that I read. And honestly, I think it's a real mistake to to police our art in that way because, you know, that's not what creates injustice. That's not what creates inequality. Like, these are just these are our games. I, I guess I, I I see I see injustice in the world and I see inequality, but I don't. I guess I have a different reaction, which is like, I don't really, I don't necessarily think moderation or responsibility in our artwork is the answer to that. Like we live in a crazy world, you know, Mm -hmm. like why, why wouldn't our art be crazy? Like Mm -hmm. it, it, (laughs) 
like, shouldn't we indulge our most ludicrous fantasies in our art? Like, I guess that's that, or our worst impulses even. Um, like, if we can't do it there, where where can we do it? I mean, right. it's kind of how I feel. Another thing that I kept asking myself as I went through the book is that is that you never really give a strong indication to the reader of what kind of of fiction you're writing. So what do you have thoughts about a a genre that you're working in or or how would you describe that? Yeah, I had um, another I I had um, someone at the Chicago Review sent me a list of questions and one of them was like whether you know whether I start off with a specific idea of genre and how that changes my writing process and I don't really like I don't I don't necessarily think that those distinctions between realism and horror and sci-fi are necessarily that artistically useful even if they are Right. You they're useful for marketing the book. I don't think they're necessarily artistically useful because yeah. um I mean I start off with a sound or like an image um or a problem of some kind and and then I try to take it as far as I can and I call that a story. But right. I do think that because this is a book of stories and because it's my first book there are a lot it, it is it, it's it's I'm trying a lot of stuff out in the book. And so I think that comes across as a little bit like, um, like multivalent. (laughs) Right. You're right. Hybridical. I think is the academic term for it now. Uh, yeah, I saw, uh, certainly fantasy elements and a strong sense of, of surrealism. Um, but also I kept thinking of, especially in this story of, uh, Ovid, and the metamorphosis, because there are metamorphosis. There's more. There's one obvious metamorphosis in in which Nancy uh, turns into Stacy. But it also seems to me like uh, Chloe the dog undergoes some sort of transformation. He goes from the undisciplined pet that jumps up on uh, on visitors and uh, to this sort of knowing sphinx-like character. Actually, one of my one of my long-term dreams is to translate Ovid. But that's all oh, right. <laughs> you know, maybe, one up I got whole, that one. Maybe not the whole thing. Maybe not the yeah. whole. <laughs> no, yeah. Ovid's metamorphosis is like one of my all-time favorite. Um, well, you know, books. you have to read then. This is an old F- FC title. Uh I think it's FC too, but it might be fiction collective. It is Don Webb's Uncle Ovid's exercise book. It's been on my list for a long time. And also I should you brought up surrealism, which is is also a huge touchstone for me. Mm-hmm. I uh I started off as a poet and um studied with Jim Tate at UMass. And I kind of I think of him as as channeling, if not the surrealist political ambitions, at least some of their their techniques in kind of like mixing it with this American folksiness, um, which I think I, I do that too in my work. Are there particular writers in whatever genre that, that you, you learned, you studied or learned from in that way? Yeah, I would say that I have maybe like several groups of 
of writers that have influenced me. So one one big group would would be the um, like post-war American poetry, John people like John Ashbery and Barbara uh-huh. Guest and and uh, James Schuyler and Alice Notley and and all of the Robert Lowell. I never Robert Lowell was never like a big. <laughs> big one for me but um Celia Plath is is really great and and I wanted to write poetry I mean I really wanted to write poetry first but I could just I was I could never really get the hang of line breaks and I always feel like I'm ultimately more of a sentence writer um but there was that influence and then the second influence would be modern like the big modernists like Kafka and and Ah, yeah and Stein Um, yeah Mostly at the mostly Kafka and Beckett, um, wow. uh, yeah. which I lo- love, and then and then genre stuff like Richard Matheson. Um, like I grew up reading a lot of Stephen King. I wouldn't necessarily count him as an influence now, but um, I really love kind of classic horror like Ira Levin. And and in terms of American fiction, I like a lot of I like a lot of this genre stuff more than the more than the realist a lot of the like mainstream realist fiction has not influenced me as much um but i would say that in terms of surrealism i feel like that influence came through um post-war american poetry like more than more than reading the surrealists directly one of the things that you do really well it seems to me is is end end your stories bring them to this kind of completely unexpected climax that feels both almost entirely opaque and at the same time, just exactly right. And I have no idea uh, how exactly you pull that off. I know a lot of it is being really trusting your own intuitions about how to, to bring closure to the work. And um, I mentioned to you, I think, uh, uh, in relationship to um, the balloon men, uh, how you work the legs of a of a of a uh, homeless person into Don't the first pages away. of the Don't story. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but oh yeah, okay. I won't give it away. I won't give it away. But at any rate, you're you're you're. Con- <laughs> I'm just. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally yeah, kidding. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're assuming that your readers are only going to read your story once, which is wrong. They're going to read it multiple times because they want to get it all down. So they'll come back to those legs again and again. But so there's there's a sort of really schooled. There's something really schooled about the way you you arrive at at, at your closures and something. Uh, so in that case, I said it reminded me of the old dictum in theater of if you introduce a, a gun in the first uh, act, it had better go off in the third act. So, you know, that's one of those sort of uh, uh, dictums of plot structure that is re- really sort of basic to every writer's arsenal. But you do that plus something else, which is like which is like totally trusting to intuition. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe that comes from having written poetry originally or, or thinking more in terms of pattern than plot necessarily. Like I, I do think that the, the, the thing that you talk about where like, if the gun is on the mantle, the first act has to be shot by the end. 
Yeah, that's a writing cliche, but there's some truth to it. You know, there's some truth to it because it's like what you put at the beginning of the story, you're laying down a pattern, like you're creating a pattern in the, in the same way that music creates a pattern. And you can't just like jettison the pattern. Like I, right. I feel like that is, yeah. I wouldn't say, I don't it's, feel like I'm breaking a contract with the reader. It just, it doesn't appeal to me artistically. Like it appeal, what appeals to me artistically is to create, to elaborate the pattern or to, you know, mm. find a pattern within the pattern, but like not to just jettison the pattern. Like you have to, what you start off right. with, you have to do something with yeah. by that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the the musical idea because I think that's uh, that's spot on. Uh, you know, so even in even in the classical sonata form, you've got the statement of a theme, but then but then this long this longer middle section of development where you don't have any idea really where the musician is going to go, and then the closure is always a return both to the initial theme but, but also to the tonic key. Right. Uh, so that's a that's a very interesting and I think a very appropriate way of talking about uh, uh, fiction, for one thing, but any art form that is that is both free to include any damn thing it wants, but also has a strong sense of its own unity. Yeah, and that's actually a good way of putting what I I'm trying to do at least in the in the in the last books that I wrote or the last stories that I wrote for the book, which was the Balloon Man and Mag, um, and what I'm working on now. I do want I I want an intense I want a feeling of forward momentum, like the like the kind of feeling you get from something that's really well plotted, where you're like, what's going to happen next? And that's always a question with fiction that isn't maybe always a question with poetry, but I, I don't ever want to answer. I, d I never want to reach closure at the end. Like right. I want, I want, um, I want the pattern mean to take over and have more of an associational relationship between events rather than a direct causal relationship, mm. which is what we get mostly with traditional narrative yeah. forms. Um, and I want both. <laughs> like, right. For some reason, I want to be able to do both of those things. Yeah, so. that's a that's a very uh, Henry Jamesian sort of uh, way of thinking about the story. I mean, he he understood sort of in the way that a good detective novelist understands that the reader takes pleasure in being uh, asked a question or being presented with a problem, uh, but then uh, not being told everything that could be told about the answer to the problem. So you get, you get closure to some degree, but you're also, you're also uh, left with something that is uh, more open. And the way James handled that was through, was through a studied ambiguity. You know, he'd always leave you with a scene that was open to further development, you know, so that you're never just, looking at a wall when you got to the end of the story you were looking at something that expanded and you seem to you seem to understand that very well yeah and i think that's something that i like in the the the, the fiction writers that i like are able to to do that 
that they leave you with a sense of mystery, even if even if the the form itself reaches a you know a sense of closure. I mean, like I was talking at the beginning, you opened with the question about class, and I do think class is a disavowed experience. Like we don't we don't really have ways to talk about it. We don't really we don't really even admit that it exists. And so I think if you want to write about class in this country, it is going to be a kind of mystery horror. Uh-huh. <laughs> Right. Mixed in with like uh, you know, maybe some 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 light erotica too. <laughs> right. Because people people always get kind of turned on by their domination, in my opinion, which is another conversation, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, um what are you working on? What's what's the future hold for Angela Book? Um, I am working on a coming of age novel, novella set in uh Florida which doesn't have a title now um, and a uh, which if that, when that makes its way into print, I'll advertise it on my website. Um, it doesn't have a title, but I'm, it's kind of in process. One last question, actually, another, another question occurred to me. Uh, how, how did you find out about FC2? Oh, um, I mean, I've known about FC2 for a really, really long time and and started reading their books during um, my undergrad. So once I had a book to publish, it was just kind of like a natural um, outlet for my writing. And also when I was um, at UMass, I met Lance Olson and he... He kind of introduced, I mean, I, I had known already about FC2, but he he kind of put a lot of um, meat on the bone in terms of like what FC2 does, like, uh-huh. um, it, like the, you know, the history of it and the way that yeah. it's like seen itself as an alternative to um, the big five publishing and, yeah. you know, has been doing that for a lot longer than um, a lot of other small publishers. Well, I tell you, I take a special delight in finding that FC2 is publishing books like yours because FC2 was originally my brainchild. And, yeah. uh, you know, my first book was published by the Fiction Collective. And then before I knew it, really, I was running the store with Ron Sukanik. And um, the Fiction Collective became dysfunctional at a certain point. And so I, I will never forget this telephone call that I had with Ron in which I sort of said, let's start and let's either take over the press or start a new press. And he said, well, what will we call it? And I said, let's call it FC2. <laughs> because I was thinking, you know, it's sort of, uh, you know, it seemed computer hip to me at the time. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but at any rate, it's just amazing to me that, 30 years after the fact that the FC2 is still going and is finding such delicious books. I mean, I'm just like kind of blown away by the fact. It's kind of amazing, actually. I mean, I and I think of it as such a trailblazer in terms of like not only publishing, you know, avant-garde writing, but also kind of putting its finger on the problem with market-driven um fiction which is like you're not you know there are things there there's a lot of literature out there that is valuable that is not necessarily marketable and and i think that's something that is so you know widespread and agreed upon now in terms of like all the small publishers out there um but you know i really feel like fc2 laid the groundwork for all of that and so it's just it is amazing that it's still around to be able to 
to do that. That point, there were a lot of times when it almost wasn't, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but at any rate, it's been a great talking to you. Yeah, um, it's been really nice to talk to you. And I also, like, I have your book. Oh, good. <laughs> I got it from the library. Um, yeah, I've sort of... Uh, I'm a writer that has had two careers, oddly enough. You know, I started out as a fiction writer and I thought that was it. And then I had this this sort of fluky transition to become to social criticism, which I'd always thought social, you know, critically. And I certainly had the background in theory to, to do the work. But um, yeah, it's been wonderful for me because, uh, you know, it kind of gave me a second career. But I am still working on, I am still working on fiction. I had a book come out with Melville Haas three years ago or so uh, called Lacking Character that actually got picked up by a lot of fantasy sites, much to my amazement. <laughs> so, and uh, I have a book, I have a book that's mostly done a novel called uh, uh, The Terrorist Black Paintings about a domestic terrorist who is also a performance artist. Um, so his terrorism, his performance art is a, is a, is a kind of domestic terrorism. That sounds very quite, realistic and timely. No, it's, not very, <laughs> it's not very realistic at all. Um, at any rate, great talking to you. Yeah, great talking to you too. And see you down the road. Thanks to Angela Buck and Curtis White for joining us this week. Fiction Transmission is made by FC2 with generous support from the Jarvis and Constance Doctorow Family Foundation. This episode was produced by Brian Kahn, engineered by Joel Thibodeau, and read by me, Madeline Lambert. You can find FC2 online at fc2.org, on Twitter at FCTWO, and on Instagram at Fiction Collective 2. Please join us next week for another story and a new conversation.